Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Chris Singer, and I'm from Lutheran Church Charities, and uh, I have the privilege and honor of serving Jesus by making sure that we bring mercy and proclamation and presence and compassion to those who are suffering and those who are in need. And I want to encourage you, I know that we are pretty familiar with your congregation. We've been in partnership with your congregation for quite a long time, and many of you know who LCC is. Uh, if you don't, I would encourage you to stop off at the table and just get a glimpse of all the things that we do because we don't do that as an independent organization. We do that in partnership with churches. And so I like to say we couldn't do it without you and we wouldn't want to either. It's a real beautiful opportunity for us to serve and I've seen some amazing things that the Lord has done at times where people really need some good news. And so it's a privilege and an honor to be with you here today, and especially as you focus in on this series that you're currently in, talking about the name of God. And what are those names that he identifies and reveals himself? In 1907, the American Thermos Bottle Company, they had launched a marketing campaign to popularize its vacuum-insulated bottles. How many of you have heard of Thermos? Okay. Well, they were so successful in their campaign that that word thermos, that name, thermos, became a household name. The problem for the company was that by the 1920s, other people, other companies were starting to use the word thermos on very similar products. And so this led to multiple lawsuits and a whole long time of trying to grab back the original intent of that name, thermos. But it was too late. All the way back to 1963, a court deemed that the term had entered the public domain beyond recall, meaning they had lost the term. It was now open use for that word. Thermos, by the way, is not the only corporate brand to fall victim to its own success. Escalator, laundromat, zipper all used to be trademarks. And now they are just simply generic terms. One of the reasons why I was excited to be able to share with you from God's Word on this series that you're in is because I wonder in our culture if we have not had a similar experience with the name God. I wonder if maybe we have wandered a bit from our understanding about who God is and what that name really is all about. Certainly in modern culture, we have begun to use that word almost as an adjective, as an expression to something incredible that happened. And we would say, oh my, and yet today we have an opportunity to once again understand what this name is. Because in this series, Knowing God, each week you've been learning to know God through studying his many names. These names that God uses to identify himself, which in turn helps us to learn more about who he is, about what he does, and I think very importantly about how he relates to us. Today, from our reading from Hosea, chapter 2, we focus in on this verse 16, where we identify the name that God uses to identify himself as Ishi, from the Hebrew word Ish. It appears over 1,600 times in Scripture, and one of those appearances is right here in this text. It says, when that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me Ishi, my husband, instead of my master. 
Ishi means husband. And this is the name that God uses for himself in this passage. And therefore, it teaches us three things. It teaches us today that God is familial, that God is faithful, and third, that God is forgiving. God is familial. Scripture is absolutely stock full of family terms, which should tell us something. Family matters to God a lot. Family is important. It is a part of who God is. It's a part of what God designed for us. And I want to just consider a few things as we take an overview to understanding this concept, family, because again, I think perhaps maybe some of us get too comfortable with the term family and lose that original intent of what family is to be all about. In our baptism, we receive the family name. We've been adopted into the family of believers. We are often referred to in Scripture as God's children and He, our Heavenly Father. Jesus Himself refers to us as brothers and sisters. Yet there's one familiar term that is front and center for us today. And that familial term is the very beginning of family. That is the role of a husband and wife. And among us today, these roles have become utterly confused. And in many ways, the terms themselves may have lost their original intent. And in some ways, husband may become more of a generic term like the word thermos. So let's just take again a quick look at what these names mean and their intent biblically. It all starts at the very beginning. Family is God's idea. God creates Adam. He says it's not good for him to be alone, so he creates Eve. And the two become one flesh. The scripture says, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one, and God's blessing comes upon them. For what reason? For the reason of family. This is what God has designed. In fact, he goes on in Genesis to say to them, be fruitful and multiply. We consider that all learning and the raising up of children happens through the family. Children, every single year, would learn what God had done for his people, the salvation that he had won for them through the Passover. Every year, they would gather together around the family table. And every year, they would recount and tell the story again and again of what God had done for those people so that the family could begin to teach and pass it on from generation to generation. Proverbs says, train up a child in the way they shall go, and they will not depart from it when they are older. In our gospel lesson, as Pastor Randy pointed out, the invitation to receive eternal life is absolutely compared to a wedding banquet. In Ephesians, all of this is emphasized as being an important framework for what is important to God. In Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6, wives are to submit to their husbands, Husbands are to love their wives, and children are to obey their parents. It's simple. It is not rocket science. I will tell you this. Let me ask you a simple question. When wives submit, and husbands love, and children obey, is your home happy or sad? It's very happy. But now, if any one of those is broken, is your home happy or sad? This is God's design for family. Christ himself is referred to as the groom, with the church being referred to as the bride. 
So in this, we not only see in God's design of family, in God's terming the terms husband and wife, we not only see how we are to be in relationship with each other, but we also see how we are to be in relationship with God himself. This marriage relationship is forged with faithfulness. Scriptures emphasize that the two, husband and wife, become one. The importance of the marriage bed remaining pure and undefiled, meaning that faithfulness must go beyond just words at a wedding, but is to be a commitment lived out in the flesh. This same type of faithfulness that we expect in our relationship of marriage is expected in our relationship with God. We're called to be faithful to him and to have no other gods before him. Now we come to Hosea. At the time of Hosea, this relationship between God and his people was broken. The people had allowed another relationship into their relationship with God. And that relationship was with Baal. Baal. Baal worship among God's people in Judah was often alternating between true worship of Yahweh. It would alternate. It was introduced into the land through an arranged marriage between King Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, and Athaliah, a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Does that name sound familiar? Queen Jezebel? The same Jezebel whose prophets went against Elijah on Mount Carmel? Yes, this is the same Queen Jezebel that we're speaking of here. Baal worship was included in their practice with God's people. And it included the sacrifice of children. This sacrifice of children was done to appease the gods, to make them not as angry with man. And how sad it is that a number of the kings of Judah, such as Ahaz and Manasseh, may have even burned their children in these sacrifices. God had forbidden this practice many times. In fact, listen to the words from the prophet Jeremiah who spoke about this. He said, My people have built the high places of Baal in the valley of Hinnom to make their sons and daughters pass through the fire, something I had not commanded them. I had never entertained the thought that they do this detestable act causing Judah to sin. And what do we see in God right there in that moment? God is heartbroken at both the unfaithfulness of worshiping another god, but also the death that it brings to the family. Certainly, wouldn't you agree that killing your offspring is the absolute antithesis and opposite of what God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply? And so God again calls out to his people. And this time he does it through the prophet Hosea. God commands Hosea to do something that sounds crazy to us. He tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. He explains his purpose in chapter 1. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. The Lord here is illustrating quite demonstratively that this relationship he desires with his people is like a marriage relationship. Hosea is standing in the role of God or the husband while the prostitute is playing the role of Israel or the wife. 
But I want you to keep in mind the question that we just had a moment ago. Has God ever asked you to do a hard thing? Can you imagine? This is not an object lesson where Hosea just grabbed a person and said, imagine if. This was real life. And we might pause for a second and wonder why God would go to such extremes for this message and this supposed illustration that needed to be communicated. And the reason is, is because if the Israel, the people of Israel did not get this message, the result was an eternity away from him. And that is what caused God's heartbreak. When the first child is born between Hosea and his wife, God tells Hosea to name him Jezreel, reminding Israel of the place where their unfaithfulness to God occurred. That was the place where they momentarily left Baal worship, but they continued to worship golden calves. And when the second child was born, God tells Hosea to name her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. And he explains, for I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them. Then they have a third child, and God tells Hosea to name him Lo-Ami, not my people, and I am not their God. Harsh, huh? I wonder, though, if we might pause for a moment of self-reflection. Consider your own walk with God, your own actions. If there was a child born that God wanted to illustrate your walk with God, what would the name be? As I thought about this, it was a very sobering moment to consider my own sin and to consider the unfaithfulness of my own walk. How about you? Again, husband and wife, the expectation of what they mean revealed to us the truth about our own unfaithfulness to God as they were meant to illustrate for the children of Israel. In referring to himself as husband or Ishi, God is seen as not only being familial, he's also seen as being faithful. God takes his role as husband to you very seriously. His steadfast love and faithfulness to you has never once caused him to cheat on you in his thoughts, words, or actions. Think about that. His commitment, his great commitment is to loving you. He takes delight in you. He creates you and showers you with his love through many gifts and he provides with your needs. In fact, when you confess that you believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, you are confessing love. You're confessing that God's created you together with all that exists. That God has given you and still preserves your body and soul, eyes, ears, and all limbs and senses, reason and all mental faculties. In addition, God daily and abundantly provides shoes and clothing, food and drink, house and farm, spouse and children, fields, livestock, and all property, along with all the necessities and nourishment for this body and life. You're expressing the love that God protects you against all danger and shields and preserves you from all evil. And all this is done out of pure fatherly and divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness of yours at all. For all of this, you owe it to God to thank and praise, serve and obey. This is most certainly true. Straight out of our catechism. This is an expression of love. Not just a mere mental exercise of some things we acknowledge. It is an expression of the relationship that God has with us. 
And think about this. He has never needed to try and manipulate you. How oftentimes in our relationships do we end up experiencing manipulation? But God has no purpose in that. He has no need to do that with you. He has no need to try and manipulate you, and nor can you manipulate him. He's above that. He's beyond that. There's nothing that serves any purpose in that for him. His heart remains open and full of love that is patient and kind. Never rejoicing in evil and keeping no record of wrong. In fact, I would tell you that the most popular verse at every wedding, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, if you want to know who that's about, it's about God. God is that perfect definition of love. He is love. That's Him. You know what's interesting is that whenever I, and I've done so many weddings, whenever I do a wedding and I get to 1 Corinthians 13, it doesn't matter the crowd, it doesn't matter where I'm at, when I get to the part where I get into love is patient, love is kind, you know what everybody who's sitting in the pews do? And you know why? Because every single one of us wants a love like that. Every one of us wants that. The question is, how are we at giving it? Oh, we all want a good love story, don't we? I read such a story this last week. Back in 2011, there was a couple that was looking forward to being married in Christchurch, New Zealand. For three days before the wedding, there unfortunately had an earthquake in New Zealand. And that earthquake demolished the very building where the bride-to-be found herself. She was trapped and buried underneath the rubble. She had her phone, and she was able to just get text messages in and out of that space that she was out, and she sent a text to her fiancé. It just simply said, I love you very much. The husband dropped everything, rushed across town, and came upon the horrifying sight. He saw her building reduced to a pile of beams and concrete and immediately set about to rescue his bride-to-be. He called for help from rescue workers and they began digging through the debris to try to reach her in the tiny cavity where she was trapped. Nearly six hours later, that bride was pulled from the wreckage safe and sound. Throughout the work, the husband kept her calm by sending her reassuring texts. His message said, your parents are okay, I'm here with them right now, I love you. There's lots of people working right now to get you out, hold on. Three days. After this brush with death and the harrowing rescue, the two were married. Can you imagine just for a second for the two of them on that day, after what they had been through, expressing these words that so many of us have said? They pledged love to each other until death do them part. Can you imagine the meaning and the richness for this couple after going through this experience? Well, God is love. He's familial. He's faithful. And he races to rescue those in trouble. He sends people to help in reaching us with his love. It's one of the things that I'm so excited to be able to serve Jesus at LCC is because we, together with the church, get an opportunity to do just that. But in order for us to understand the third and the last point that God's role as husband teaches us, let's go back to the story of that couple in the earthquake. Would your perspective... And how would you feel, would it change, if I told you that the building that the bride-to-be in was where her former boyfriend was living? Would that change how you feel? Would it change your response? Because I will tell you, that is literally what God is illustrating to his people. 
But I want to assure you that this brings us to the third thing about what God is. First, I'll let you off the hook a little bit. That didn't actually happen in the story. But it did in our story with God. Yet while we were still sinners. And here's the good news. Our God is forgiving. Even in our unfaithfulness, God still went to rescue us. But perhaps maybe we can understand the verses that actually precede the verses we read today. Let me share with you verses 10 to 13. God says to his people, I will bear you in public while all of your lovers look on. No one will be able to rescue you from my hands. I will put an end to your annual festivals, to your new moon celebrations, your Sabbath days, all your festivals. I will destroy your grapevines and fig trees, the things that you claim your lovers gave you. I will let them grow into tangled thickets where only wild animals will eat the fruit. I will punish you for all those times when you burned incense to Baal, when you put on those earrings and jewels and went out to look for lovers but forgot all about me, says the Lord. Maybe now we can understand such harsh language in the Old Testament. Maybe now we can understand God's anger. How would you feel if you were that fiancé showing up to that building and that was indeed the wrong place for her to be? But let's switch roles here for just a second. How would you feel if you were the bride-to-be? Because every one of us in our sin is the bride-to-be, having been unfaithful to God. Convicted? Devastated? Guilt? Shame? Remorseful? Such devastation is in need of rescue, but our God is forgiving. Because after God says those things, 10 through 13, verses 10 through 13, the verse where we picked up, listen to what God also says. But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. Isn't that what God does? Our God takes the worst of situations and turns it around to be something that brings hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago. And when that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, Ishi, instead of my master, Baal. O Israel, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips. You will never mention them again. And on that day, I will make a covenant with you and you will not be harmed. I will be faithful to you and I will make you mine and you will finally know me as the Lord. He fights to rescue you, to lift you up out of the rubble of your sin, to heal your wounds, to dress and adorn you in the finest of linens, feed you with the finest feasts and to enjoy a full relationship of love forever. Our familial, our faithful, our forgiving God is husband to us. And he proved this best when he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come to save us. Yet while we're still sinners, 1 John 4.10 says it absolutely spot on. This is real love. 
Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Let me ask you, is there any other God, is there any other God that can love you like this? Is there any other God that you will choose to serve and follow? Or will you, like the prophets of Baal, who they realized on that Mount Carmel, and just like every other devotee to any god of any other name discovers, there is no god like the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Choose this day who you will serve. The Hebrew name Baal in itself, there's a wordplay that the Lord uses here. The Hebrew name Baal can mean husband, Lord, or master. But it's interesting because God uses this word to compare it to himself with a different Hebrew word for husband, Ishi. And one of the things that stood out to me as I studied this was to realize that here is Baal requiring of those that are married to him the death of their children. Truly a harsh husband. And then you look at Yahweh. You look at his tender mercy. You look at his love. And you say, wow. And that's what verse 16 says. In that day you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. Jesus said something similar to us, didn't he? I no longer call you servants, but I call you my friends. I want to close with this. At the end of all of the tears and the sorrows, the brokenness, the unfaithfulness in this world is coming a moment where we will see God's faithfulness fully revealed and fully accomplished for us face to face in the flesh. And we get a picture of that from Revelation chapter 21. I want you to listen again to the imagery that God is giving to his people and showing to John the reality of what is ahead with this theme of husband and wife. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because these things will have all passed away. Then the one seated on the throne says, Look, I am making everything new. Write these words down because they are faithful and they are true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. And when we look upon her, listen to how it's described. We are described as her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone clear as crystal. 
I close with this thought. I often tell grooms before we're about to walk out my own experience because I don't want them to miss something that I gained a perspective on. I often tell them, when you walk out and you're standing at the end of this aisle and those doors swing open, you're going to see your wife. Incredibly beautiful. All of the hours, time, the journey that she's been on to this moment, the dress, the diamonds, the jewelry, the makeup, the hair, the dress, everything. All of that is such a beautiful gift. It will be one of the most beautiful gifts you will ever see. As I read this and as I read this again this morning, I think about us. You are such a beautiful gift. One bought, purchased, and redeemed by our Savior Jesus. What a privilege that day is going to be for all of us. What an honor it's going to be as we are welcomed into that relationship for eternity. God, our husband, who loves us so much, who has redeemed us with his son, and now who walks with us with his Holy Spirit. All these things we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.